Uh, we're going to go ahead and open up our Bibles now and study the Scriptures out of Luke. So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 18, around page 877 in this series in Luke. We've been calling it Jesus Confronts. Jesus Confronts uh, in this third quarter of Luke. We'll get to the fourth quarter in the new year, but in this third quarter of Luke, it's a, a change of focus where Jesus is really fixated on his coming death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And so as that's coming, uh, the conflict is heating up and he's confronting more and more our immaturity and also our legalism. And so we need to hear what he's saying to that first audience because he's also saying those same things to us, challenging us confronting us, and we have to continue to remember that he's confronting us because he loves us, and he's drawing us into a place of rest and new life with him. This week, as we get to chapter 18, verse 9, uh, we're calling it the weakness of faith. So we'll be in chapter 18, verses 9 through 30, the weakness of faith. How many of you have ever held a newborn baby? Raise your hand if you've ever held a newborn. Okay. It's like this gorgeous, but kind of terrifying experience, right? Because they are so weak. They're so fragile. They're so tiny. You have to like even hold their head up so it doesn't just like fall off. It's, they're just these fragile little dolls, right? And it's really interesting that humans, more than most other mammals in the animal kingdom, are, are way weaker at birth, right? Have you ever seen like a giraffe? Like it get born at the zoo and giraffe pops out and it's like just cruising around. You know, it's awkward, but it can walk. and It's just crazy, right? Humans are not like that. Baby humans are incredibly weak. And God has given us this wonderful gift, this metaphor with baby children saying, this is what the spiritual life is like. This is how we compare to a holy God. We're, we're just a little baby. And that can be insulting to us because some of us like to think we're, we're strong and established and smart and we know what we're doing. And God is like, no, no, no. Compared to a perfect, good God, we're, we're just little babies. We're just little babies. That's what Jesus has for us today, the weakness of faith. And in, in case you miss this part of it, the weakness of faith is about the strongness of God. It's about the grace of God. It's about the goodness of God. So don't, don't miss that part, okay? But he's going to start with our weakness. So we're going to look at one little, little piece in the middle of our section, and then we're going to go back and read all the text, verses 9 through 30, but we're going to start with verse 15. We'll start with verse 15, and I just want to capture this image that he gives us of, of the weakness of faith. We're, we're like little babies, okay? So look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him talking about Jesus. They're bringing infants, babies, to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Okay, so we just got to explain this, right? People are bringing their babies just to be close to this Jesus. They're seeing him heal. They're seeing him do miracles. They just want Jesus to pray for their babies, to touch their babies, to be near their babies, to bless their babies. And so people are starting to bring babies to Jesus. And the disciples are like, come on, we can't have this. Get the babies out of here. <laughs> Jesus is too important for babies. That's what his disciples were saying. That's the, these, these leaders, Jesus is investing in these guys. They're going to carry on the message, and they're like, no, 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 Jesus is too important for this. Get, get the babies out of here. Get rid of the babies. Verse 16, but Jesus called them to him, saying, let the little children come to me. 
and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus corrects his disciples and is like, no, no, no. I'm cool with babies. Bring the babies. I'll, I'll pray for them. I'll bless the babies. Kingdom's all about babies, right? So number one application, I, I want to settle this because we're going to move on to a, the next application. The number one application is that the kingdom is a place that honors babies. The church is a place, should be, right? Sometimes throughout church history, we failed at this. But the church should be a place where we love and honor children, where none of us, none of us, think we're too important for children. This is so important. This is such a big deal. But it's not really what the, the main point of the text is about, okay? So, so tuck that away, believe it, live it out. He's got something even more important for us. Verse 17, look at verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So he's like, yeah, we got to love babies. Babies are important. We got to honor them. But don't miss this. You can't even get into the kingdom unless you're like a baby. No way. You can't enter. No entrance. Nobody goes to heaven marching in with their shoulders bowed up saying, look at how strong I am. The only way we get into heaven, the only way we get into God's kingdom is through the weakness of faith. A faith that's all about the strongness, the goodness, the perfection, and the grace of God. That's what faith is. We're trusting him, not ourselves. And so again, Jesus is really teaching two things here. He's saying we should be a place that honors and loves children. Why? Because we are children. Because <laughs> we're saying, just like in the Old Testament, God would tell the Old Covenant Israelites, hey, remember you should be kind to outsiders because you were outsiders. You should show grace to others because I showed grace to you and saved you. Jesus is saying the same kind of thing right here. He's like, yeah, we, we should be a place that loves babies because we're babies. And the only way we're getting into the kingdom is if we realize how weak we are and how much we need him. So I want to pray that God would help us to learn this because there's a bunch of other stuff we've got to cover, uh, but it's all going to reinforce this idea. Several other teachings he's going to give us they are going to reinforce our need to just be utterly dependent on God by faith, to just trust him and not trust ourselves. Some trust in chariots and horses, the Old Testament says, but we're going to trust in the Lord, our God. So we're going to pray that, that his spirit would be with us, that he would help us, because we're such babies, we can't even learn his word unless he comes and helps us. So we're going to pray that he'd show up. Let me pray. God, we ask that you would teach us what your word is saying, that you would open our ears to hear you, that you would open our eyes to see you, you would give us hearts that love you. We pray that your spirit would magnify your work among us, and that your spirit would do what your spirit loves to do, which shows how great Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So we pray that, that all these things would happen supernaturally because of your mercy, not because of our greatness, because you're good, because you love us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the weakness of faith is a little bit, I have to admit, it's a little bit of a clickbait title, right? Because it's not so much about our weakness, it's about God's mercy and grace, that's, that's really what it's about. And, and so this concept is a really important concept that shows up all throughout the New Testament. And I just have to say as an aside, there are some scholars that argue that the idea of salvation in Christ by faith in him does not appear in the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to say to those scholars, read chapter 18, right? 
read chapter 15, read chapter 4, read chapter 10. Like, like read the book of Luke. But here it's really, it's really clear. Here it's really clear. Jesus is just hammering this home. Now, he doesn't use the word faith a lot, right? But he's teaching this concept. Faith is trusting in God, not trusting in ourselves. And that's what he's going to hammer here. And this idea of the weakness of faith comes up also in the Apostle Paul's writings. The very beginning of 1 Corinthians and the very end of 2 Corinthians, kind of tying all of that together, because he's talking to the Corinthians who are very strong people about how their strength wasn't enough. Being awesome, being important, being rich, being impressive, none of that matters, Paul was telling the Corinthian church. So he says it this way a couple of different ways. And again, it's the very beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, very end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is God's plan. Those of us that are strong or think we're strong need to hear what he's saying. And then later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God told me my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So this is a long, deep tradition in the Christian faith all throughout the New Testament that it's not so much about how weak our faith is, it's just the idea that faith is us saying we can't do it. God can. That's what faith is. Are you willing to say that to him? And so as we unpack this teaching of Jesus here in chapter 18, we're going to see three uh, steps, if you will, three applications for us, three ways we can live out the weakness of faith, three ways we can say, uh, you, God, not me. Um, So the number one is confess your sin. Confess your sin. Uh, We're going to see that in verses 9 through 14. Confess your sin. Number two, we're going to see that we should ask Jesus for help. Ask Jesus for help. We'll see that in verses 18 through 23. And then number three, we'll see that we should expect the impossible. Expect the impossible. That's in verses 24 through 30. All of these things are illustrating this idea that Jesus says in this little story in verses 15 through 17, where he's like, come as a little child, stoop down, and trust me, depend on my goodness as a perfect heavenly father. Now for some of us, we have our earliest memories of childhood as being a place where we were not safe. And we had to learn to be strong in an unnatural way. And so this is a very hard lesson for those of us that lived that way. We learned, no, I can't trust mom and dad. I can't trust my parents. They're not safe. I have to take care of myself. And what I want you to understand is what the Bible teaches is that the reason you know that your parents failed you is because you have a heavenly father that's perfect. He's the standard, and you can trust him. Even if you can't trust anybody else, you can trust him. And as you learn to trust him, that's what's going to change your life so that you can actually kind of functionally trust other people a little bit as well. But it's about trusting him, the weakness of faith. So number one, we see that we should confess our sin. Confess your sin. We'll see this in verses 9 through 14. Point number one, confess your sin. Uh, So in verse 9, he starts to tell this parable. It says in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Um, So if you've ever felt this way, 
this lesson is for you. I think we've all felt this way, right? We've all started to think, yeah, I can, I can take care of myself. I'm okay. I've done enough good things. Or I'm being true to my heart, right? It's kind of like the traditional and the non-traditional way to do this. There's the trusting yourself of religion and the trusting yourself of non-religion. There's the like, I got this, I'm a good person. That's trusting yourself, not God. That's the religious side. And then there's the non-religious side. It's like, I'm trusting my heart. I'm doing what feels good. Surely that'll save me. That's the non-religious way of, of trusting self. Jesus says neither one of those really work. Don't trust in yourself because that obviously, maybe not obvious to us, but it always leads to treating others with contempt. That's all packed in just verse 9. I wish, we could, I wish we could spend more time on that. Okay, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Those were the religious leaders. Those were the ones that trusted in themselves and thought they had it all together, that thought they were good. Remember, throughout Luke, we've seen that often the religious leaders focused more on ceremonial or showy displays of holiness and less on real displays of holiness. Less on love and justice and more on the ceremonial things, displays of look at me, look at how holy I am. So this guy's a Pharisee. The other guy that came up to the temple is a tax collector. Tax collectors were like a combination of someone who had betrayed his people, right? So there was like this political kind of uh, tribal hatred they would have for them because he was a Jew that was siding with Rome. But he was also like a mafia boss that was involved in corruption and stealing from people too. So there was kind of a double reason to hate them. They betrayed the Jews and they were stealing from people. So tax collectors were just hated across the board by the Jews. Verse 11, so the Pharisee, the good guy, the religious guy, the pastor, theology professor type guy, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I don't know that he was actually pointing, but it definitely feels like it, right? Like, or even this tax collector right here, this really bad person that's also in the temple. He shouldn't even be here, Lord. He's, he's praying this kind of prayer. He goes on, verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See that? Two very different ways of relating to God. Two very different ways of relating to God. Ask yourself, are you the one that's like, you know, I'm doing all right. Those other people are bad. Or are you like the one that's like, man, I'm bad. And, and mercy is my only hope. Which one are you? Well, Jesus is going to render a judgment on which one we should want to be. He says then, Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the be merciful to me, a sinner, this man, says this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What does that mean? Not the other. He's saying the bad guy was made just, the good guy was not. He's rendering a verdict. Guilty, not guilty. Isn't that crazy? He's flipping everything upside down. I hope, I hope you see how crazy this is, how controversial it is, what Jesus is teaching here. 
He's saying this one's justified, not the other one. And he's going to explain it. Here's how it works, y'all. This is the law of the universe. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the rule. That's the only way you get in. The weakness of faith. You say, I'm just a baby. Will you let me in? You say, uh, 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 God, pick me up. Right? Like, what can babies do? Anybody know? Not much. Grunt, cry, use the bathroom. They don't actually use a bathroom, though. Uh, sleep, right? I think those are the three main skills of a baby. There's probably some other things I'm missing. Um, cry, eat. There you go. Eat, go to the bathroom. There's not a lot that babies can do. And God is saying, come, come to me with the weakness of faith. Humble yourself. Then, then you'll be lifted. Then you'll be picked up. Reach out to me. I'll pick you up. But don't like push me out of the way and say, I deserve to be here. No, you're you're going to get humbled. It's a bad situation. I, I want to pick on the word justified for just a minute because sometimes we miss this word. It's, it's kind of a theological word. Uh, it becomes a, an important technical word when theologians talk about it. Uh, and just for clarity's sake, uh, justice and righteousness are the same word, okay? Um, so we say justified as a verb because it sounds weird in English to say righteousify, right? Like that just sounds wrong. So we say justify, right? But they're the same word. So, so what this is saying is one is made righteous and the other is not. Why is that important? Because nobody's actually righteous. Scripture's clear. Nobody's good. Nobody's righteous. So God has to make us righteous if we're going to come into his presence. Now, in English, we use the word in two different ways. Justify. We use it in one way, which is like, I've proven myself publicly, right? Like, I said this one thing, and, and other people thought I was wrong, and then I went and I, I dug up some research, and I was justified in front of them, right? So I was kind of proven in front of them. Uh, but then there's this other technical way of using justify, of like, made just, declared just, declared righteous, said, you're good. So in theology, it's, it's also used in those two different ways. James uses it for proven in front of men. So if you look at James chapter 2, because this is a theological debate a lot of people have, James just straight up says, oh, you, you can only be justified in front of other people by your works, right? He's saying, yeah, your works prove that you really believe what you're saying. But pretty much everywhere else in the writings of the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament here in Luke, it's used in this kind of eternal before God sense of you are actually made just before God, supernaturally. The impossible has been granted to you. You and you and you and me, unrighteous people, are made righteous because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's New Testament justification. So just to clarify, it is used in two different ways. And even Paul in a couple of places uses it in that vindication kind of public proving way. But most of the time, it's like that absolute eternal decree of you're righteous in the eyes of God. What, what does this mean tangibly? For you and for me, if we trust in Jesus, God no longer sees us as this repulsive sinner. God sees us as, as beautiful and righteous and as perfect as his very own son. We're clothed in the righteousness, righteousness of Christ. That's the good news. God delights in us as his sons and daughters. That's the gospel. If... We humble ourselves as a child and say, I can't do this. I need you. Are you willing to humble yourself and ask for help?
So other cross-references, uh, Paul talks about justification in that eternal sense by faith in Galatians 2.16. It's a really helpful summary verse because he repeats himself three times. It's like you're definitely not made righteous by the stuff you did. It's not your track record. You're just a baby before a holy God. You come up to him with nothing, but even your righteous acts are filthy rags, Isaiah says. You, you come up to him with nothing as a baby, and by faith in his mercy, he makes you righteous. You're justified. So Paul talks about that in Galatians 2.16. Another cross-reference is Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10. Kind of summarizes it, kind of pulls it all together. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you've got the whole thing together of like it's, it's grace, it's a gift of what God does. It's not something we do. It's just us trusting him by faith. But then it's going to lead, verse 10, it's going to talk about it. It leads to some good stuff, right? Because what happens is we're absolutely trusting him and that's what changes us. But then when he's made us righteous, when he actually says, I love you, you're forgiven, you're mine, what does that do to us? That just blows us away in such a way that we actually start to trust God on a daily basis. We actually start to see the things he says are good and we love him and we follow him and we start to obey him. We don't just magically become perfect and just do everything right from that day forward, but we stumble forward following and obeying God. And so Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 gives that that whole picture of it's absolutely by, by faith, not by what you've done. It's by confessing your sin and trusting in his righteousness, but then he's gonna give you good works to do. You're gonna begin to change. I grabbed a picture of a confession booth here because the idea is that we should confess our sin. That's where it starts off, right? We should have the same attitude as the guy who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And a lot of times in movies, or even if you grew up in religious circles, we have in mind a very specific way of confessing sin. There's a tradition of going to a booth, confessing to a priest. Um, And what I want you to hear is in the scriptures, we're told that we can go directly to Jesus. You You don't have to go to a booth. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time like trashing another tradition. That, that's not really the point. The point is not so much that this is bad. The point is going straight to God is good. So, so that's the point. This is not me like, they're terrible and you should never go to a booth. You can go to a booth if you want to. That's fine with me. But I'm just saying you can talk to God. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, there are two basic fundamental human attitudes towards God. There's the lying attitude of I don't have sin And then there's the honest confessing attitude of, I'm a sinner, will you save me? Those are the two ways that you can approach God. Jesus says we should be like the guy that says, I'm a sinner, will you save me? Oh God, will you save me? And just remember, because it's it's tricky, we lie in two ways, right? Some of you are lying this way. You're like, no, I'm good. Because you're comparing yourself to your friends. You're like watching the tax collector come in the back of the church and you're like, I'm way better than that guy. Okay, I guess I'm in. And God says, don't compare yourself to him. Compare yourself to God. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, this brilliant, holy, righteous prophet, sees God, and he doesn't say, but God, I'm really better than the bad people in my life. He doesn't say that. He just comes undone. He's like, God, have mercy on us. Our people are unclean. I'm unclean. We need atonement. We need mercy. So watch that. The religious lying of comparing yourself to people that you're better than them. So you think you're righteous. You're not righteous compared to a holy God. You need mercy. And then the non-religious lying is like sin doesn't exist. That's outmoded. What, you know, there's no such thing as sin. No, no sin is real. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist I love to read. And he said, you could carry around a tape recorder 
uh, excuse me, uh, a phone with a voice recording going. And you could just carry that around for a few years. Say it recorded everything you said for a few years. And human beings can't even pass that judgment. We can't even live up to our own words, right? Like we could throw out the law of God. That's what the non-religious people be. They do. They, they say, yeah, I don't believe in any law. There's no such thing as sin. But then they make all kinds of declarations about how people should live, right? We're like, we should do this and we should do that. We don't even live up to that. There, there are none righteous, not one. And we should confess our sin to God. And, and guess what he does? What does he do? He forgives us. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's this other ongoing confessing of your sin that's described. We talk about joining a group where we just live life together. We're like, man, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? And that's in James, James 5. He says, confess your sins also to one another. So go straight to God, confess your sin to him, say, God, will you save me? And he will. And then live a life just ongoing, confessing your sin to one another, asking each other to, to pray for you. And he he will heal you. He'll help you to follow him, to walk with him. Okay, second point. I spent way too long on the first point, sorry. Take a deep breath. Okay, second point. Ask Jesus for help. Verses 18 through 23. So we're, we just uh, read earlier the little section in between of verses 15 through 17. Come like a little child, the weakness of faith. Say, it's God, not me. I'm not righteous on my own. It's God's righteousness. And now we see this other story where he interacts with a rich young ruler. So he's just said, come like a baby. And right after he says, come like a baby, this good-looking, rich, powerful, important person walks up and is like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And so I hope you see the story contrast, right? You can just kind of feel the tension of Jesus just finished explaining the only way to enter the kingdom is like a little baby that Near Eastern people in the first century thought were worthless. Come like a weak little baby, and what's the next thing that happens? Big, strong, powerful man walks up. That's the setting, okay? Ask Jesus for help. Verse 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So remember, I said this already in the other point. Don't compare yourself to other people, right? And Jesus is just cutting right to the quick. He's like, well, why are you calling me good? Only, only God is good. He's basically saying, you're starting off on the wrong foot, man. Like, thinking I'm good? Does that mean you think you're good? Like, nobody's good. Only God is good. Now, this is fascinating because as we see the rest of the New Testament and we see the direction of where all this goes, where does it lead us? No, actually, Jesus is good, right? But he's helping this man to understand, right? Jesus just presents as a regular human rabbi and he's like, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. What, what's this about? What are you really thinking? So he's challenging this guy's beginning assumptions. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus starts off like, okay, I think you misunderstand what good even means. I think you misunderstand what is righteousness because compared to God, none of us are righteous. Only God is perfectly righteous. And he's like, okay, God has given us a handy dandy little ruler. Let's pull that out. It's called the Ten Commandments. Measure yourself. And the guy's like, I'm good. <laughs> Jesus, 
Jesus realizes he has more work to do. So I'm saying ask Jesus for help like this is a good thing, but uh, when you ask Jesus for help, he's going to help you, no matter how painful the surgery is, okay? I still want you to ask Jesus for help, um, but this guy is not going to like the help that Jesus gives him. So he's saying, ask, ask me for help. I'll give you help. He says, have you checked the commandments? Do you realize only God is good? He, he's, he's helping this guy wrestle with it. The guy's still not getting it. The guy says, I am good. I've, I've kept these all from my youth. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. So he's going to give him one more thing to do. So Jesus starts with the Ten Commandments. I, I've got a picture. I actually found an old photograph of Moses with the Ten Commandments. Um, actually, it's, that is not... That's not been authenticated, but as I was, I was like zooming in, it's not even Hebrew, y'all. It's just like weird scribble marks. I wish the artist had gone to more trouble than he did. But anyway, it's the best I could do. But it's to remind us of the story, right? Um, in the Old Testament, God gave the law to Moses, written on these stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he gives this law and he says, this is how you should live. Because I've saved you. And so we talk about this a lot, but I just want to clarify this. This is a little free theology. We'll move on. We have the same moral law now as the old covenant people of God did. Um, Just a couple of little proofs are he gave all the rest of the law on these scrolls, right? But he carved the Ten Commandments on stone. So what do you think he's trying to say about them? They're special, right? And then what else did he do? He said, store them in a golden box. And we'll call that my throne, and my presence will descend upon it. So he's saying these are more important than the others. And then we see them repeated in the New Testament. The only one that Christians even debate is the Sabbath. And I like to joke that that's the one we debate, but it's the easiest one, right? The one where he's like, just relax. And we're like, I don't know about this one. This is hard. (laughs) So, you know, if you have questions about Sabbath, we can talk about that later. But just know, like, the Ten Commandments, the moral laws is repeated in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's consistency. Like, you want to be righteous? This is how to be righteous. And the Scripture says again and again, none of us are. None of us are really good. There's only, only God is good. So we have to ask Jesus for help. The law can't save us. That's the overwhelming message of the New Testament. The law is not enough. You've got to ask Jesus for help. I hope you see that. The law is good. We should do good things. We should be moral people, but we can't do it on our own. We need to ask Jesus for help. Built in to the Ten Commandments, God has given a first commandment and a last commandment that are helpful like cliff notes, spark notes, summaries to help us understand the whole thing. And so Jesus is going to kind of attack first and last commandment with this guy because that's the one that really undercuts people that think we're self-righteous. So those of us that are like, man, I've been doing pretty good. I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. I, I barely even cuss anymore. You know, like I'm just a pretty good person. Jesus wants us to zero in on the first commandment and the last commandment. Because frankly, I haven't murdered anybody in a while. I've, I've been faithful to my wife. I don't steal stuff, right? Like I am doing pretty good. But Jesus is like, look at the first commandment and the last commandment, okay? This is what he's going to do with our friend here, the rich ruler. So verse... 22, he says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But When he heard these things, 
he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is really dangerous for us. We've talked about this, right? As Americans, again, we compare ourselves to our neighbors. We're like, my neighbor's richer than me. I'm not rich. Or people in that neighborhood are the rich ones, right? You all know the neighborhood you wish you could afford to live in, but you can't afford to live in that one. So you're poor because you're just this poor middle-class chump in America, right? But in the history of the world, we're the richest people. Like the poorest of us in the room are rich people. We're all rich young rulers, when we walk up to Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, you, th- you think you're good enough to be saved? Only God is good. You think you've kept the Ten Commandments? Well, just give me everything you have. We'll see how you're doing on the first and the last commandment. What are the first and the last commandments? The first is you shall have no other God before me. What's your God? What's most important to you? Let's measure what's most important to you. Just give it all away. Jesus is like, let me have it. And then we'll see who your God is. What's the last commandment? Do not covet. That's basically, don't want anything that's not yours. Think any Americans have ever violated that one? Just don't want something that's not yours. That's all. Just like this little cherry on top of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) It's devastating. Jesus is like, yeah, you haven't kept the commandments. Just to be clear. Congratulations on not murdering anybody. You've still violated the Ten Commandments. No one is good except for God alone. So Jesus says, I'm going to take the thing that you've said I'm unwilling to let go of. Like I said earlier, if you ask Jesus for help, he will help you. But he's not always going to help you the way that you'd like. We often are like, Jesus, this is not how I wanted you to answer that prayer. I wanted you to answer it in a different way. Right? health and blessings and riches. That's, Jesus, the only prescribed way that I want you to answer my prayers. And Jesus is like, no, I I might take all that from you so that you can learn that I'm enough. When he takes those things away, Jesus really is enough. Are you going to hold on to those things and say, no, I'll only trust you, God, as long as you don't touch this one thing. For some of us, that's, that's family, right? For some of us, like, I had this hard childhood, so I'm going to build this perfect family and it's going to be invincible. No one can touch it. And then their cracks start to break into your family. It's not as perfect as you thought it would be. And you're like, God, we had a deal. I told you I'd follow you as long as you didn't touch this. Or it may be money. Like I grew up poor and I just can't do that again. I'm going to be secure. I'm going to have a good savings account. I'm going to have a good retirement fund, right? I just, God, I'll follow you as long as you don't touch that. I need the money. It might be relationships. It might be fun. It might be your health. And he's saying, just trust me. Trust that I'm better than all of those things. Now, to be clear, God, the norm isn't just give away everything, right? That's not the norm throughout New Testament and Old Testament ethics as far as what we do with our money. The norm is use your money for your own business and your own family and then give away part of it. That's the norm. That's the standard ethic of Old and New Covenant. Tithing in the Old Testament is given away a tenth, right, to uh, the ministry of the Word and to the poor, to, to declare who God is and to show that with our actions, to caring for those that are weak and broken and struggling. Make sure you remind the world that all this money is not mine, it's God's, right? So we're always giving away some of it. 
the Old Testament, they had this thing called gleaning where they'd leave some of their crops so the poor could come and help themselves to some of the edges. You, you leave a fringe for others. You give away a percent to others. You, you're always giving some away, right? And the New Testament adds to that that you should plan ahead and it should be cheerful. You should have joy with that, right? Because God has given to you, you should cheerfully give to others. That's the standard of how we handle our money. But if you ask Jesus for help, he might say, man, we, we're going to have to do radical surgery. I'm going to need to take it all. That's not the norm. But I think what we need to do is we need to say, Jesus, I, I need your help, whatever it takes. If you've got to take this thing that I didn't want you to ever touch, you take it, right? In Romans 12, that's expressed as offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Like the daily life as a Christian is to get up and behold, looking back on God's mercy. God has been so kind to me in Christ. He saved me. He loves me. I can trust him. And then we just offer our life and say, whatever you want, God, it's yours. What what do you want to do with me and with my life and with my resources today? So again, the standard is not just giving away all your money, but that's what this guy needed. Jesus knew what he needed. So what are you holding on to that you're not willing to let go of? Go ahead and offer Jesus those things now. Just say, Jesus, it's yours. What do you want me to do with this? So that brings us to the next point. Expect the impossible. Verses 24 through 30. Expect the impossible. So in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, our big idea is we want to come like a baby. You want to come like a baby? God, I have nothing to offer to you. I just need you to pick me up and hold me and save me. I can't do it on my own. Rich young ruler comes up and is like, I've got all these resources and I should be good, right? And Jesus is like, no, give up your resources. Just, just come to me empty-handed in the weakness of faith. And Jesus says, man, this is an ongoing problem with people that are obsessed with money. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So again, remember, he's talking to all of us. We're all rich people. Poorest ones in the room. We're still rich. And so he says, we, we need to come into the kingdom, yet it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I grabbed a picture of a camel for reference. We actually saw a camel when we were in Israel a few months ago. And we didn't ride the camel. We were like, eh, 100 bucks. I don't think it's worth it. But we took a picture. We thought he was really cute. So took a picture of the camel. Camels are big. They're, they're pretty tall. And uh, you see them all throughout the Middle East. It would have just been a standard animal. They pack things on their backs, right? And I had a book when I was a kid, a uh, children's book. And I can't remember exactly what it was called. But it was about this passage, right? Um, and it told the story of how there was this gate in the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Y'all may have heard the story. And that gate was called the eye of the needle. And so in the story, it's like, you see what the camel had to do to get into the eye of the needle? The camel had to get down on its knees, like camels do, right? Hunch down, and then they had to unload all of its baggage, set the baggage down, and the camel would scoot into this small little gate, and then they could push the baggage through, and then the camel could have his baggage back. They could load him back up on the other side. Really fascinating story, right? pretty good illustration. The problem with this illustration is it can make us think that Jesus is prescribing this simple like two-step process. We're like, just come up to Jesus and say, hey, 
I'll give you my stuff as long as you give it back later, right? And then we can be cool, right? So I'll unload my stuff. You sneak me into the kingdom. Then you give me my stuff back, right? And that's how we often operate with him. And I learned later when I started studying in seminary, like, oh, that, that gate in the city walls of Jerusalem, the eye of the needle, that actually came around in like 1200 AD. It did not exist when Jesus was telling this story. So it was a medieval gate. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about a needle. A needle. And have you ever seen how tiny the eye of a needle is? I'm 50. I can't even see them anymore. <laughs> like even with my glasses, I put my glasses on, I still, I still can't see it. Right? My wife's like, can you do this? No, I can't do it either. I can't see it. <laughs> They're so tiny. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Yes or no? No. Are you sure? No. <laughs> no, they can't. It's impossible. They can't do it. It's impossible, right? His disciples get it. Look at what his disciples say. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? This is a big deal. His disciples are upset. Then who can be saved? Jesus? What is Jesus' answer? He said what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. So what's the answer to who can be saved? Only the people that God saves. People can't save themselves. This brings us back to that original picture, right? We come like a baby in the weakness of faith, saying, not me, but you. Some trust in chariots and horses. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. I'm going to trust in Jesus and not in myself. I'm going to trust in a Jesus who lived the life I couldn't live who died a sacrificial death to take my place, to take my punishment for sin, who then rose from the dead, proving that he had not only conquered sin and death, but he now rules and reigns as king of the universe. I'm going to trust in him and not in me. That's the weakness of faith. We should expect the impossible, that this is the kind of thing that God does, because God is good and God is gracious. And this is what Jesus is explaining to his disciples. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And sweet Peter, verse 28, he says, and Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. He's like, we're in, right? Like we gave up some stuff. We're in. Is that how this works? So this is like profound thing. None of you can be saved apart from the supernatural grace of God. And Peter's like, but we, we got rid of our stuff. We're, on, we're in, right? Like, and I feel like Jesus' answer is just like patting Peter on the head. Yeah, yeah, Peter, you're good. I, you're kind of missing it, but you're good. You're fine. <laughs> Verse 29, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What's he saying? We're going to inherit eternal life. And it's way better than this stuff, right? Peter's like, we gave up our stuff, so we're getting our stuff back, right? Like we unpacked our, our camels, so we're going to get it back on the inside of the gate, right? And Jesus is like, you're missing it, dude. It's way better. It's way better than stuff. Like eternal life is, is more than that. Is eternal life symbolized by, by health and and life, and light, and money. I'm sure, it's symbolized, but it's like, it's more than that. You're going to get so much more. We're, we're going to get God himself. 
Like that, that's the pearl of great price. That's the treasure we're selling everything else for, giving up everything else, letting go of everything else we're holding on to so tightly and saying, okay, Jesus, I, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're enough. We should expect the impossible. So, so the first impossibility that we should expect is that God will actually save us. It's not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. That's what Titus 3 says. It's not because of the righteous things we've done, it's because of his mercy. Expect the impossible, God, God will save you. Secondly, expect the impossible that God will change you. He's going to make you more like Jesus. We all struggle and stumble in many ways. But the great impossibility of salvation, we can trust Jesus for that. Guess what else? The great impossibility of learning to love God and love others, of learning to obey God, he can do that too. And he will begin working that out with fear and trembling in our hearts and in our lives. What's the third impossibility we should expect from Jesus? He'll actually use us to bring this hope to other people. Now, we can sometimes get sidelined, I think, or distracted by fixating on the impossible things of of miracles and great supernatural displays of God's power. Paul is um, challenging the Corinthian church for that in chapter 1, 2, and 3. If you're one of those people that really really wants God to do big, miraculous, amazing things in your life, read, read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3. He says, I really, I really prefer to work through weakness and humility. But we can get really excited about that. We can say, see, God does the impossible. He does. God can do anything. And often throughout history, God has done impossible things through his people to attest to his word being true and believable. But Jesus says very explicitly in John chapter 14 and in John chapter 5 that we will do greater works than him. And when you read chapter 5 and you read chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, the greater works are not temporarily healing people so that they can die later. The greater work is resurrection from the dead. The hope of the Gospel. That's the greatest miracle. That's the impossible that God will do through us. I hope, I hope you don't miss that. Like the God of the universe says, yeah, you're a little baby that can't do anything, but I'm going to work miracles through you. And the greatest miracle is you're going to just tell people about Jesus and they're going to find resurrection hope in him. That's a miracle. That's crazy. People will be, be saved, we say. We'll know God eternally, eternal life, eternal riches in him. And our character will begin to change no guilt in life, no fear in death. Is that the line? That's impossible. We can walk around with, with no guilt in life and no fear in death. Expect the impossible from Jesus. The greater works he describes in John 5 and in John 14. And don't forget um, what we learned a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 10 that the disciples were amazed that God was doing these greater works through them, but, but they were also doing these other amazing works of healing people and exorcisms, all the stuff. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing to rejoice in, the impossible work that the God of the universe has adopted us in love and made us his children. That's the greatest work. All right, we'll wrap up with this little story from 
from my life as a young father, when I had a two-year-old baby, I got to take my child to the beach for the first time. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this. You can excuse yourself to go to the bathroom. But um, <laughs> I, I share this a lot at weddings because um, when you're getting married, if you don't know this, when people are getting married, they're, they're stepping into a huge unknown. They're stepping into like an impossible life, right? Things that they can't even imagine. Uh, difficulties they, they can't envision yet. And so I share this story a lot to help people remember what it looks like to practice the weakness of faith, to practice the weakness of trusting in our Heavenly Father that loves us. I, I took my baby to the beach, and she's about two, one and a half, two, so just kind of the toddling age, you know, little, little tiny hands, little tiny feet. I have to like lean over even to hold her hands, and we're like walking through the sand, and she's pretty happy. She's pretty pumped about this. She'd never walked on sand before at this age, you know, and it, she's kind of giggling, and she's excited, and we're going out to the water, and as we get closer to the water, she starts to get some splashing on her toes, and, and that's exciting as well, and she's giggling, and she's laughing, and she's having a great time, and as we get deeper into the water, um, I'm a lot bigger than her, right, because she's two, and so the water is splashing her body in such a way that I don't even really feel it, right, because I'm so massive compared to her, but like, it's like knocking her around, right, and so my little baby is, is starting to become afraid, She's starting to get scared because these unknown waves she's never felt before are like slamming her left and right and forward and backward. And in that moment of, of fear and instability, she didn't just curse the waves, right? And she didn't just let go of my hand and run the other way. What do you think she did? She, she looked up and, and asked me to pick her up. I, I joked, I don't think she really had good words yet. It was just like, uh, uh, right? And she just asked her daddy, who she knew loved her, and she knew was stronger than her, to pick her up and to carry her. And so I, I had the joy of holding her, and, and my strength became her strength. And, and then as the waves knocked us around, because we got deeper and deeper, and it started to move me around, but then she was okay, because she was in my arms. We're all going to walk into deep waters in life. We have no way of predicting. Waves that will knock us around, waves that will terrify us. And when those times come, we don't curse the waves, we don't run the other way, we reach up to a heavenly father in the weakness of faith saying, I, I trust that you're strong, I trust that you're good, and I trust that you're gracious and you'll hold me. And it, it pleases him to hold us, it pleases him to walk with us through the hard times in life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you do love us, thank you that you've proved that by sending Jesus for us. Help us to walk with you by faith, depending on you, day by day. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen.